mentioned a few days ago that I me When you put your glasses on and off, the ear thing doesn't work as well. So I'll try it this way tonight. I mentioned uh, a few nights ago when I spoke that I thought it uh, would be good to talk a little bit about working with pain. And I appreciate just my own practice and being a yogi many, many times, a retreatant many times, that uh, whenever, like, someone's going to talk about working with pain, the mind, my mind gets a little greedy because we want the answer. (laughs) We've been tormented by pain, physical pain, emotional pain for so long. And then being on retreat, it's a real setup because we become more sensitive. You know, the mind, uh, what we see, what we feel is amplified because the mind settled. And there we are with a body or old emotional pain and we feel at times really trapped by it. But it's good to know that we're in pretty good company. It's interesting when you read the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha that even the Buddha got sick. Even the Buddha got old. There are times it was reported that when he was sick he would go lie down somewhere and ask, like Sariputta, one of the main disciples of the Buddha, the chief disciple of the Buddha, to give the Dharma talk that night. And I think at one point, when he was an older person, he, maybe talking to Ananda, his attendant, said that uh, he described his body as an, like an old cart that was held together by bamboo strips, you know, some just barely functioning. And you can imagine somebody at that time living outside for much of his life, wandering, you know, and now in his 80s, it would be a little bit like an old cart held together. It probably wasn't that pleasant in terms of the physical sensations that were arising for him. So this predicament that we find ourselves in with emotional pain and physical pain. You know, we can look around the room. You can look up at Deborah or Steve or Mark. You can look pretty much anywhere and you'll see creatures, human beings and other beings that live in a realm where there's pain. And the other important thing to remember is that it's not personal. It doesn't I mean, we tend to think that it reflects badly on us when we have pain. I must have done something wrong. And we even, there is even, you know, aspects in the Buddha's teaching, this teaching on karma, that can seem on the surface, if you don't reflect deeply, like it is our fault. You know, I did something bad, and now somebody who kept score is punishing us. (laughs) You know, and that's why I have a stomachache or knee pain or don't like the humidity, can't let go of this pain of loss. Why did he leave me? Why did she leave me? 
what were they thinking? <laughs> so um, we realized that everybody experiences pain and it has nothing to do with, like in this moment that this pain is arising for us, it doesn't necessarily point to you or me being unskillful in this moment, right? It's arising, we know it's lawful because everything is coming and going according to causes and conditions. So we can trust it on that level, but we can't tell a story like that has a, a blame. All we know is that it's here. And then the important relevant practice question is how to relate to this. What is the skillful way to relate to this? You know, what have the nuns and monks and practitioners in the past, what did they do with their physical pain? You know, and it's interesting, again, just looking at the story of the Buddha. And he would, even after his awakening, even with deep, unshakable release of his heart and mind, a mind no longer, you know, those torments, no longer evidently arising for the enlightened ones, and he still did retreats. He still sat and meditated. He used mindfulness. I think even toward the end of his life, he, I think there was one uh, passage where he said that the only time he is uh, able to get some space from the pain was when he was in deep state of concentration. You know, it was that strong that he couldn't like, look at the sunset and get a little relief, like absorbing. It wasn't enough of an object. He had to really retreat from sense experience. So one of the ways here on retreat, and I think it's an important tool to remember with pain, is seclusion. I mean, being here, we're already secluded from some pain, just being on site. We're not engaged in the media. You know how we get some pain from reading, hearing the news? Hopefully none of you are experiencing any of that pain right now. And they're probably irritating people back home in your life. And you're not, you know, unless you bring them to your mind, hopefully I'm not prompting you right now. (laughs) (laughs) But you have a little space just because you're secluded. And we can, of course, even seclude the mind more, right? We can, when we're walking, maybe it's natural or maybe it's intentional, but we can really the mind can give itself, the attention can give itself to the simplicity of knowing the lifting and placing. And for a while the mind can be so present with the ordinary experience of lifting the foot and placing the foot, so much there in the experience of knowing the lifting, knowing the placing, that it's not aware of anything else that would be considered painful, seen as being painful. So on retreat, that means any time the mind opens and connects and sustains awareness with neutral objects of experience or pleasant objects of experience, then we have some freedom from pain, right? Because the neutrality of lifting and placing the foot for most of us isn't painful or feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out. And the mind, of course, some of you know this, can retreat much further than that. Right? It can, 
the mind can take as its object of awareness the state of peace itself, the state of or the experience of stillness itself. So the mind can get really quiet and then the mind can be aware of the quietness, aware of the peace. And then what arises in the mind is a kind of equanimity that arises because the mind isn't being afflicted by painful sensations, painful thoughts. And so the mind realizes in that very secluded setting that, oh, I know how to be in the world now that I'm so secluded from everything that pushes my buttons, right? I can be open and I can be undefended. I can really relax. I can really be intimate. That's what we learn in deeper states of concentration when the mind is stable and quiet and peaceful. It learns a kind of equanimity that's dependent on the seclusion. But now we got to go back, right? That, that sit, that quiet sit, that peaceful walking meditation, it lasts for a while and then something happens. You know, mosquitoes arrive, arrive on the scene or the sit ends, we have to do our yogi job or something happens or the retreat ends, we go home. And then we can't count on being secluded from things that are seen as painful to support the equanimity. So now we need the equanimity that comes from wisdom. And that really uh, helps us understand what to do with pain. You know, to really see pain, the physical pain, the emotional, mental pain that arises, to see it as a teacher, to help us understand, to help us develop this other kind of equanimity, the equanimity that arises from wisdom. So I'll talk about that tonight. The Buddha makes, uh, in, in many different suttas, discourses, he makes this point, basically, that when, the, when wisdom, when the mind understands vedna, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling, as something that comes and goes, something that is unsatisfactory, even pleasant is unsatisfactory, and as not-self, that that's one way the Buddha talked about liberation. The mind, the heart, understanding deeply, clearly, the underlying nature of feeling. So in the case tonight, talking about unpleasant feeling. So it's not just something we work on so that we can get to practice. You know, I gotta deal with this unpleasant pain in my knee. I have to get beyond this, you know, unpleasant emotional thing my mind is obsessing with so I can start to practice. And this is really helpful because generally the way we compound unpleasantness is by running from it. And it's not a perfect image, but the image I always comes to my mind, having not spent a lot of time on the beach, but you know, I sometimes enough times in my life been on the beach and you know, attempted body surfing and just playing in the waves. And you know how it is, you're, you're out there enough and then a big wave, a, a wave bigger than you really want to see <laughs> is coming your way. And it's like, 
somehow diving into it doesn't make sense. And you, you do the stupid thing. <laughs> you start to run from it. <laughs> and if you haven't done this, you know, what can happen is you get really thrown around. And even, you can even get like your face and body ground into the sand, you know, and sand gets forced into any place it can get forced. And <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> And this is the, I think there's some <laughs> instruction here <laughs> around unpleasant feeling. But, you know, the important thing is we have to move, we have to begin from a place of confidence that it's safe to turn toward unpleasantness. When we don't have the confidence, we won't necessarily be skillful either. You know, it might be, um, yeah, just like a deer in headlights standing there. I think Steve used the phrase in terms of the torments that he was talking about last night. Maybe he said it this morning, I'm not sure, but like assessing whether the mind has enough stability that it's willing to play with the unpleasant feeling that's present, with the pain that's present. Can the mind, and we just have to do the self-assessment, is the mind actually interested or is it only interested in escaping? There's a quote in uh, Larry Rosenberg's book on mindfulness of breathing. I'm forgetting the title of the book. Um, he said, practice really begins when you see that there is no escape from suffering, no escape from pain. Not that there isn't an end to suffering, but that escaping is not the means to that end. Right? And so that's, that's the important thing about this creative, interested, relatively balanced, relatively stable place where we can begin to learn. We can actually, in a sense, bow down to our teacher, this physical pain, this emotional pain. If we don't have that stability of mind, we need a, an array of skillful uh, objects to direct our attention to. But if we can't be with what's showing up with any skill, so all we're going to do is practice getting tight, practice closing down, practice blaming somebody, practice uh, using some distraction, then we're just reinforcing what we're here to to liberate the mind from, right? We're creating, we're planting the seeds of more spinning, more mental torment. And it, it really has to do, um, and I, I raised this question in my earlier talk about embodiment, but it, just in terms of the body, but we could say more generally about the world. You know, is the relationship we want with the world one of hiding? Like, I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy to have a sensitive body and mind as long as I don't have to be here, you know, as long as I don't have to feel things. Or I'm happy to be a sensitive person, have a body and mind as long as I can control things, as long as I get to determine what I experience. But see, both of those views are absurd. We can't control it. And as long as we're alive, we can't escape it. And even, you know, if you 
if you use Buddhist cosmology, even if somehow this life ends, you're just given another one. And you're, it's like that Groundhog's Day movie. You know, you just, you're there again. <laughs> Keep showing up. You have a body, you have a sensitive body and mind, and you have all kinds of feelings. And so the, <clears throat> we realize, okay, I won't, I won't be able to meet every painful experience that comes my way. So I have this other set of skillful means of, well, maybe I'll take a walk. But basically directing ourselves to some activity where we believe, it seems, as we assess the mind, that the mind would be able to be balanced, be able to connect and sustain in that experience. Right? Because then we can practice, we keep the practice going. And so this is why, you know, we give instructions about it's okay to stand if you're feeling a lot of pain or stretch out a limb or if you're sleepy or to adjust the schedule, do more walking, less walking, uh, more walking, less sitting or more sitting, less walking or sitting in a chair instead of the floor or any number of other things that we can have along that array of so if something's arising and we've tried a number of times just to be with it, with a stable mind, with wisdom, to see it as just sensation being known, just this unpleasant feeling tone being known, but very quickly the mind ends up spinning, obsessing, reacting, getting tight, blaming acting out the torments, being identified with the torments, being the anger, being the greed, being the distraction, the denial. Then when we come to our senses again and there's some clarity, then it's better to make a different choice. So I wanna emphasize that because as I talk more about working with pain, it assumes, right, the strategy, some of the strategies I'm gonna talk about, it assumes that there's enough stability of mind, that you're not immediately, the mind isn't immediately ending up struggling, closing down, seeking some sense pleasure to balance the pain that it feels exposed to. Try that. So just uh, a review, the, the pain that we experience has some characteristics that we can reflect on. We call it you know, Vedana, feeling tone, and the particular kind of feeling tone, dukkha dukkha, the unpleasantness, the sort of direct and immediate unpleasantness of sensation or some mental activity, some <clears throat> mental object. And then the mind is conditioned to see that as unpleasant. And you can see this through life, it would be really useful. It's useful for a mind to be able to you know, in order to navigate the world, to use feeling tone 
to remind the mind of where there may be danger, where there may be something useful or something healing or something needed. The other thing, and I think uh, people have mentioned it somewhere in the Q&A maybe, but pain is a, can be a really useful object of awareness because when it arises, it gets the mind's attention and the mind tends to wander less. So that's one of the characteristics of pain. Steve reminded me earlier today, um, because it's easy to associate pain with the torments, like being aversive, being afraid. Or one of the things the Buddha mentions in the discourse on the dart, the second arrow that we, when we react, the mental reaction to physical pain, let's say, is that uh, pain isn't the mental reaction. Pain is just nature, it's just pain. And uh, it's the feeling tone that arises when there's some experience that the mind is conditioned to see as unpleasant. And that's what I meant earlier when I said it isn't bad. It doesn't make us bad. I mentioned already that pain is lawful, it's inevitable. And it's a kind of information. It's the way the body and mind communicate with each other. And the other thing is pain is universal. And I mentioned this earlier too, and it's a perception to cultivate the pain we feel. Is that really different than the pain somebody else feels? We all know physical pain. We all know emotional pain. And we can sort of find that normalizing of the pain is an antidote uh, to the kind of personal dramas that we construct, the mind constructs and then spin with about my pain and how it's unfair or how it shouldn't be this way. It's just interesting to start to name or notice the stories you have around pain. There's a teaching I heard from a talk that Ed Brown gave. Some of you know him, he's a well-known Zen teacher and author and a student originally of uh, Suzuki Roshi at the San Francisco Zen Center. And in a talk, he told this story, and I think it's a, a not an uncommon story, it's told in different ways, about a practitioner going to see the Buddha. And in this version, it was a farmer. And the farmer had a walk long and far to find the Buddha and eventually tracks down the Buddha, gets an audience with the Buddha, and basically starts to complain about how difficult his life is. You know, there are mosquitoes, too much rain, too little rain, all the hard labor, you know, the kids not doing their chores, whether or not cooperating, and on and on and on, just sort of naming all the difficulties in his life. And the Buddha looked at him and said, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems. You have 83 problems. This guy has 83 problems. It's just the way it is. And uh, you can imagine the farmer was pretty upset. It's like uh, having come all that way and then to get that sort of answer. And he started to storm off. And when he was just about out of earshot, the Buddha said, I really can't help you with your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. <laughs> and that kind of 
caught the ear of the farmer, so he came back. And the Buddha said, maybe you know, the 84th problem is not liking having 83 problems. Right? And that's, uh, that's important around pain because we're not healing the pain. We're not removing pain from the world. When we lose somebody we love, it'd be interesting, I don't know, but it'd be interesting, like what does that experience, what's that experience of loss for somebody deeply, deeply wise, somebody we'd, we'd call an arhat. When the Buddha was told that Moggallana and Sariputta had died, his two chief disciples, he said it was as if the sun and moon were removed from the sky. I mean, that's a very poignant description of loss. But presumably the Buddha didn't proliferate, didn't dwell, didn't attach to that experience of unpleasantness. The very real, the very ordinary, unavoidable pain of loss, the pain of stubbing your toe, the pain of being having an old body that doesn't work very well. So the 84th problem is not liking uh, being exposed to pain. And so we try to fix everything, right? Like movements and when we sit. One thing that Joseph Goldstein used to repeat in his teachings is uh, an old teaching that movement masks dukkha. And this is something to look at when we're sitting or just any time, you know, when we scratch, when we adjust, even it happens even when it's not physical discomfort, but a painful memory comes. You notice you kind of want to get up, get out of the hall. And so one skillful means when the mind is stable and we have confidence in this path of awareness, of opening, and there's often uh, this move where we, whatever presents itself first that's seen as being unpleasant, we let the attention go right to the unpleasantness. Right? So it's like part of the wisdom in the mind or the wisdom in the mind knows what's actually predominant or actually relevant. It's that it's unpleasant. Not the story, not the specific sensations, you know, whether it's twisting or burning or throbbing, but that it's unpleasant. That there's that impulse to not like it, to push it away. So the mind can go right to the unpleasantness of it. And, uh, and then that, so then the instruction or the strategy to be still, to relax, to let it be what it is, to let it present itself. And, you know, a question that can be raised, like, is it dangerous for the mind, for the heart, to be sensitive, to be exposed to whatever's arising here? It may be intense, it may be intensely unpleasant, but is it dangerous, is it destructive in some way? to the mind or body to be present with what's being felt? And that's really an open question. You're not like 
telling, you know, yourself that it, oh, you know, fool, it's safe. You don't need to be afraid of this. It's just we're cultivating an openness and a curiosity because a lot of habit energy is arising, like get me out of here, turn the attention away, distract myself, do something. And so we're asking, well, is it safe? Can the mind be interested? Here's what uh, Joseph Goldstein wrote in his most recent book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. This is chapter eight. He says, mindfulness of the four postures illuminates the truth of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness in a very immediate way. This becomes clear when we investigate why it is that we move or change postures. When we pay close attention, we see that almost all movements are an attempt to alleviate some kind of pain or discomfort. When we're sitting, we can see this in the slight shifts of posture, uh, slight shifts of position in order to relieve some tension or in the larger movements of posture when we move if pain becomes unbearable. All this is summarized in the Dharma statement, movement masks dukkha. It's worth investigating for ourselves what drives the many movements we make during the day. So it's nice as we're, you know, right in the middle of the retreat today and we have, you know, in the great scheme of things, there are a lot of moments left in the retreat, which is great because we can really, with this attitude of discomfort as a teacher, when we're not overwhelmed, then we can get interested as if it's, Specifically, this arising of discomfort, of pain, was like a gift, specifically designed like a curriculum that had us in mind, (laughs) you know, whatever it might be. Joko Beck has this, just talks about this. She says, with unfailing kindness, your life always presents what you need to learn whether you stay at home or work, in an office or whatever, the next teacher is gonna pop right up. And we'll see over and over again, you know, that promise that, uh, boy, I need to get rid of this. I need to fix this and then I can practice. So you really wanna catch that attitude. It's totally understandable why we have that. And I think this simile goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. You probably have heard it, but it's that story of, you know, you have a problem, you're stepping on sharp stones, so you have this great solution. I'm going to cover the world in shag carpeting or or leather or something, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense because in, in a way, it's a little bit the approach of civilization. That's what civilization is you know, some version of, it's not easy being a sensitive creature on this planet, so let's get civilized, you know, and we'll pave things and we'll have 
I mean, look at our cars these days. I mean, even those of us who are just sort of middle class, I mean, the, the chairs, the seats in the cars now are so comfortable. <laughs> you know, this, like, it feels nice to be in there and it's like climate controlled and the music these days, you don't even need to pay extra for the special stereo system, just the ordinary stereo systems in cars. It just sounds so good. And you can hook your smartphone up. You can have like, I mean, some of you, I'm sure I don't, but have thousands of songs in your iPods, pads, or whatever they are that you <laughs> plug in. <laughs> or all the best Dharma talks you've ever heard. <laughs> so we have this idea that this is our strategy for pain. Better technology, and but it just sort of gets us in a tighter box. Like things, like even the fabrics that we're comfortable having against our skin. You know, I can't have these fabrics against my skin anymore. And I can't eat these foods anymore. And I can't tolerate. And it, it seems like we're really managing our pain, but actually what we're doing is getting into a tighter spot, a space where there are more things to be afraid of, more things that bother us. And this is some version of thinking that if we could only cover the earth with carpet, then we wouldn't step on anything sharp. And you probably can guess, if you haven't heard this, that the alternative is to make a pair of shoes, right? Because then you don't need the world covered in carpet. So the, uh, the idea, you know, building a pair of shoes is the development of insight, sort of what I was talking about, this equanimity that arises from wisdom. So the mind now knows something about feeling, the feeling tone. It knows something about the unpleasant feeling that an ordinary person doesn't know, which is a nice segue to this very famous discourse that you probably have heard mentioned. Maybe you've even taken a look at it. It's a pretty accessible discourse sometimes translated as the, the arrow, or sometimes people refer to it as the second arrow. But in this translation by Nyanaponika Tara, it's translated as the dart. And it goes like this. An untaught worldling, <laughs> that's sort of us most of the time, right? Somebody, who, somebody without deep insight that doesn't come and go, right? So maybe we have moments of wisdom, but we probably have moments of being an untaught worldling, right? They experience pleasant feelings, experience painful feelings, experience neutral feelings. A well-taught noble disciple, right? Somebody who's fully awake, likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. So what's the distinction? It's, it's a nice how the Buddha begins this little teaching with a question. What's the difference between an awakened being, somebody with, deep wisdom, well, she experiences pain, pleasure, and neutral feeling, and an unworldly. So what's the difference between the pain and the pleasure and the neutral feelings that I experience and what a Buddha might experience? And he goes on. He says, when an untaught worldling is touched by a painful feeling, let's say a bodily feeling, this one, this person worries and grieves, laments, beats one's breast, weeps and is distraught. 
one thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling, right? Because the reaction, the mental reaction to being exposed to pain is itself painful. It is as if a person were pierced by a dart and then following that first piercing is hit by a second dart. So they experience the pain of two darts. And then he goes on, I'm skipping a a little bit. Having been touched by that painful feeling, one resists it and resents it. Then in one who so resists and resents that painful feeling, an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling comes to underlie the mind, right? So we think pain is bad. We think it's dangerous. Now, sometimes pain is giving us some information that there is something dangerous, like we're touching something that's really hot and we should move our hand. Like I said earlier, pain is information. But the pain itself isn't dangerous. It's the touching the hot stove that's dangerous. And the pain is the information that you should pay attention, you should look. But some pain that's arising isn't telling us that we need to change what we're doing. So if we mistake the pain, think it's something other than just some information, something being known, then it can really set something in motion. That's what the Buddha then describes. So it's an underlying, creates an underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling. Under the impact of that painful feeling, one then proceeds to enjoy sensual happiness. And why does one do so? An untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So there we are exposed. We've decided it's bad, the pain we're exposed to, we're aware of. So the only thing we know to do is, is there anything pleasant I can direct my mind toward? Right? So then it, it begins, the Buddha goes on and he talks about how then it begins to shift and it big, eventually becomes a habit. So now our relationship to pleasant is confused. We're making pleasant more than what it is because we mistakenly think it's going to save us from unpleasant. So that's why, you know, marketers can sell all kinds of things to us because we think it's going to somehow save us, lift us out of the experience of pain. But what it adds instead is the tension of craving, right? Because the mind is craving pleasant, needing pleasant, dependent on pleasant as a way of managing the unpleasant that's in my life. So it's complicating, it's entangling. And then the more we seek pleasant, the Buddha goes on to talk about, and I'm just roughly paraphrasing the teachings, that the mind then neglects neutrality, neutral experience, because it doesn't appear to us as a threat like pain does, a personal threat that we need to get away from, and it doesn't appear as something I can use to manage my pain, pleasant. So we ignore neutral. And so basically our whole relationship to the world, a feeling, and, the, and feeling is a, a very central aspect of our 
experience of our reality. It seems relatively subtle, but it is really driving so much of the show, how we experience feeling. And so we've just set ourselves up. We've mistaken pain as dangerous. And so we're, we, don't want to, we don't want to receive the information. It's like, I don't want to receive that information. And so we seek out pleasant with a kind of desperation born out of that ignorance. And the more we pursue pleasant sensation, the more we neglect ordinary neutrality. And so we miss like how much of our, when you think about the day, how much of it is neutral? I mean, a lot. And yet the mind slowly over the years has been conditioned to think of neutrality as not relevant. It's just not relevant. And you see, and we can imagine now, like what is the consequence of disowning, you know, whatever percent neutrality is, let's just say 50% of experience is relatively neutral. And it's just not showing up. We're not, we just, the mind is conditioned to think it's not relevant to connect with. This is one of the real um, beauties of being on retreat is our world comes alive because we're more aware of neutral. And it just, things just feel so much more rich and uh, ordinary things, you know, walking down the hallway, seeing leaves, you know, seeing the green of leaves, eating oatmeal. I mean, really things that would normally not register, but, and even with more practice and in mo- and more stable mo- moments of awareness, there's a kind of um, higher happiness, a peace that comes that I was talking about earlier, because when the mind is just in a neutral experience, an ordinary neutral experience, it's free from the push and pull of aversion and greed. And it, it can begin to intuit like this peaceful way of being, not being pushed around by greed and aversion, this feels useful. This feels like there's something to learn here. This experience of equanimity or impartiality. It's kind of hard to believe that when we have knee pain or we have the pain of loss um, or any kind of pain, a toothache, it, it can be hard to believe that the mental resistance to the unpleasantness is significant because it, it sort of the story that goes on in our mind is that the bulk of the problem is the unpleasantness itself as opposed to the bulk of the problem being the mind not liking, not wanting to be sensitive to the unpleasantness, right? So there's always those two things. And the, the not liking, that's the realm of the torments that Steve talked about last night. So an interesting reflection to just work with in practice is 
And, and I would do this with really ordinary discomfort, just feeling a little restless or a little knee pain. And then just get interested, well, what is this experience of unpleasantness without my ideas about it? What is the unpleasantness in and of itself? I mentioned in in, uh, one of the suttas, the Buddha talks about seeing Vedana, seeing the feeling tone deeply, seeing that it comes and goes, that it's not self, it's not personal, it's there because of the way the mind's conditioned. You know, I could show some of you, like a you know, particular dish, whatever it might be, um, tofu. You know, and some of you, you know, a nicely prepared dish of tofu. You know, some of the people in the room, it would be pleasant. And the smell would be pleasant and the eating of it would be pleasant. And others of you, it would be unpleasant, right? So is the pleasantness inherent in the tofu? No, it's, it's the way the mind's conditioned. Some minds conditioned to see that as pleasant, to taste that as pleasant. Other minds, unpleasant. There was uh, something I just read recently. Oh, it was a really great article about placebos. And I think it was in the New Yorker a while back. But when I was going through my files on pain, I came upon this. And so I read it. And they reported one thing that happened. Uh, some doctors during World War II, this is when they started looking at the placebo effect. Uh, they found that some soldiers that um, had really bad trauma, physical trauma from you know shap- uh, bullets or whatever it was, explosions, that they were offered morphine, and but they said no, I'm fine, or something like that. And then other people had very minor things that weren't in the heat of the battle. It's like they were really like a lot of us might be when we have you know ordinary pain. You're like yeah, give me give me the meds. I don't want. Why would I want to feel this pain? And um, what they concluded, at least one of the conclusions was that these people were in such a traumatic event, they were just so happy that they were alive, that they were still alive, that that attitude really affected how they interpreted the physical sensations that they were experiencing. Because you know how it is, like you can be sitting in a very beautiful place, and you can just have some little thing, but it can be, it can seem as big as the world, like, like it's really going to kill you. For example, try to let a mosquito land and bite. It's, it's not that unpleasant, and the risk of some disease is not that high, at least up here. But it's really hard to bear the sensations, the unpleasant sensations, or a, a tickle even, or the sound of them doing that, uh, ripping up the grass, they're going to replant the grass. You know, that can feel really oppressive on the mind, depending on the attitude. And then there were some of us who probably didn't notice it because we had really good distractions going, or we had the mind was really settled, and there was that 
equanimity of being, the mind being relatively secluded. So the, the mind, the sensitivity of the mind, maybe was able to hear that sound, but the more predominant experience was the mind's subtleness, the kind of stability of mind we call samadhi. So it's just interesting to bring this attitude to pain. Like when we start to work with ordinary pain, instead of assuming that the mind's first reaction is the truth, like the interpretation of the unpleasantness that I'm experiencing right now, but that it's really fluid. It's fluid in all kinds of ways. And this is the general theme of insight anyway, is that whatever construction the mind constructs, it's not the truth. It's just a temporary arising, right? It's a thought being known. And the Buddha has a line that has always been useful for me. It's something like, no matter how you conceive it, it will always be otherwise. So no matter how your mind is conceiving pain, like what the story you're telling yourself about the unpleasant experience you're experiencing, that story is never the truth, never. And if we can just remember that, we're really working with that second kind of equanimity that arises from wisdom. Because wisdom is when the mind is able to connect, able to open with awareness, with enough continuity that it can begin to discern what is the unpleasantness in and of itself. Not in terms of my thought, not in terms of my conceiving, my conceptions, but what is the unpleasantness in and of itself? And the mind, the sensitivity, the mindfulness, it reveals like how it shifts. It's not a constant. And it begins to associate like the pain becoming more intense and less intense with, no surprise, the attitude, right? The attitude we're bringing to the pain really seems to affect how the pain is experienced. And this is what the doctors realized after World War II. Like soldiers with one attitude couldn't handle even relatively minor pain. Soldiers with another attitude could handle really seemingly intense pain. So, now that, that's a real uh, uh, jolt to the sense of self. Because uh, when pain arises for us, you know, there's a very, you know, generally we have a very strong sense of a somebody who wants to do something about this. And so to open our mind to this idea that it's fluid and that uh, the important um, practice is to get interested, to get close, and to see how the mind participates in the fluidity of feeling tone. When you uh, look a little deeper in the Buddhist teachings on Vedana, on feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that we experience, he has this teaching on what's unworldly feeling. Like what is what we normally call pain when it's related to with deep wisdom? What is pleasure when it's related to with real wisdom? 
And this is something we can explore ourselves. One of the, in my own practice, one of the more regular causes for a, a strengthening, a really powerful strengthening of faith is every little time uh, my mind, I'm in an experience where my mind feels afflicted. And now I've been practicing long enough that when my mind feels afflicted by physical pain or emotional pain, usually it's not too long before it's like a little mindfulness spell because there's some confidence now that suffering is optional. Pain isn't optional. Pain comes and goes, it's just part of life. But the mental resistance, the suffering, that's optional. So when I do have some pain and some resistance to it, let's say, it's like a mindfulness bell goes off and the mind remembers, I don't think it has to be this way, the suffering. I don't think the resistance, the suffering has to be this way. And so you see, then the mind is naturally interested instead of like blaming or defending or thinking of a way out, some sense pleasure that will modify the unpleasant. It's like interested in leaning in, moving toward, getting interested, relaxing with asking even some questions that might bring it into view. What's being known? What else is present? You know, any of the defilements, any of the torments of mind wanting to come in? Well, let's notice them because in noticing them, we're not gonna necessarily as easily at least be governed by them, be swept away by them. Oh yeah, there's that impulse to be afraid. There's that impulse to want to strike back. Well, what other options, what other intentions or motivations? Well, Steve gave a talk on the right attitudes of mind. So we know, right? We can, well, try kindness. I wonder, I wonder if I could relate to this with kindness or try letting go, like letting go of needing the pain to be anything more than what it is. It's just this unpleasant, experience being known, letting go of any of the conceptions that are arising. One of the things that, like even when we're working skillfully with pain that can be tiring, is uh, feeling the impulse to get tight, to be averse, and basically, not that we'd say it in words, but honey, you don't need to be averse to this. It's just pain being known. It's just unpleasantness being known. But then because of the, mo- the momentum of relating to pain with aversion, we have to do it again. So you have to be really vigilant when we're being mindful of pain. In some ways it's easy because it's a clear object of awareness, right? And the mind doesn't wander. But it can also be exhausting because over and over and over and over again, aversion is going to want to come in. And wisdom has to be right there to say, I... I don't know much, but I know getting tight around this physical pain isn't going to help. Being averse to the physical pain isn't going to help. Right? Haven't we seen that enough that that's some wisdom the mind owns? That wisdom is there. I mean, we can forget it clearly, but we know getting tight around pain. I mean, if there's something we can do, we should do it. 
But so a lot of times, either because we choose to sit still, knowing that eventually the sit will end, or there's really nothing we can do with the pain that we're experiencing. So then we have this other option, which is, I don't know much, but I'm not going to intentionally get caught, get identified with aversion, with fear. I'm not going to go down that road if I can prevent it. So I'm going to put it down, I'm going to put it down. And then sometimes after doing that for a while, the mind gets tired. And then, like I mentioned earlier in the talk, we have another option, right? We can redirect the attention away. We can go take a walk. We can open to hearing if we're going to continue sitting, whole body awareness. But we're specifically, even though the pain may still be the predominant object arising in the moment, wisdom intervenes and says, you know, I don't think you have the balance to turn toward that predominant experience. So what else is there in the present moment that the mind can be aware of? Where there's hearing, right? Sometimes when things are really difficult, you see people uh, sitting in the dining hall, right? Just being aware of people coming and going, sipping tea. It's possible to have really productive practice in that setting because the movement of activity around you is something the mind can, it's like neutral enough and compelling enough that the mind can be in the present moment without the mind governed by the torments, by greed, anger, and delusion. So there's, you know, it's just this array of skillful means that just grow the more we cultivate mindful awareness. I think one of the wonderful things to do someday, we should have like a wall, you know, a graffiti wall here at IMS. And through the course of a night, we'd have to have it so you could erase it at the end of the retreat. But, you know, every time somebody uh, related skillfully, found a way to relate skillfully, to sort of stay in the game, stay in the practice of awareness with challenging experience, they'd sort of just make a little note on the wall, you know? And you just see it growing because it's how many times today, I mean, not the times we didn't do so well, but the times we actually learned a thing or two, had some stability with what was difficult, what we would have otherwise ran from or resisted or gotten tight around or sought some pleasant experience to get away, to sort of distract herself from it. But instead, we learned something about the impermanent nature of feeling. We learned something about its impersonal nature. It's not self, it's just part of nature. And that any conception the mind builds out of it is stressful. Any story we tell ourselves about pain is not helpful. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about pain and that we're not going to do things. I mentioned this article on uh, Sunday about that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote about his pain, this very well-known Buddhist teacher and translator, really bad migraines. And he talked about, he tried everything, including uh, acupuncturists, but also uh, some, so just different kinds of healers. He, he listed like, I think, seven to 10 different types of healing things. And he's currently taking medication too, on top of it, Western meds. 
on top of it. But at some point, there's nothing left to do. So even when we do those other interventions, we can do it in a calm way and we don't have to be desperate because as the Buddha says, we know another escape from pain, right? We may not have perfected it. We, not, we may not have perfect confidence in this other escape, but our teacher, the Buddha says there's escape. We in our own experience have had some taste of this escape, right? This equanimity that arises from wisdom. So this is more than the equanimity, just being able to get some distance from it. But even when we can't get distant from it, there's an escape. And that is to see the nature, the underlying nature of the pain. It's changing nature, it's impersonal nature. And with, it's so interesting how powerful it is to know that whatever the mind constructs around the pain doesn't help because it gives us permission to keep putting down the story and putting down the story because we know in our bones, it's not gonna help. It's not gonna help. Telling myself a story about this pain isn't gonna help. So let's just leave it here for tonight. Let's take a few moments of silence and just settle into the experience of the body sitting. Take it another moment or two and whatever discomfort, having been sitting for a while that's present, understanding it as a teacher, Some time for movement practice.